Welcome to the Pacific Forest Foundation's Talking Timber, where each week you meet the professionals behind the Northwest timber industry. Hi, and welcome. I'm Diane Mettler, Executive Director of the Pacific Logging Congress and host of Talking Timber. In this episode, we will be speaking to Steve Brink. He's the Vice President of Public Relations at California Forestry Association. He's going to talk to us about his journey and what's happening in the California forests. In the meantime, I want to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Logging Congress and the Pacific Forest Foundation. Both are promoting sound technical forest education through projects like this podcast. This year, the Pacific Forest Foundation awarded over $20,000 in scholarships. To find out more about the organization, visit www.pacificforestfoundation.org. We also want to thank our sponsors, Timber West Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal. Each issue of both magazines is packed with valuable and useful job stories on successful mechanized harvesting plus wood processing techniques. For more information, visit www.forestnet.com. Okay, let's hear now from Steve Brink. Uh, how I got involved in the industry was I was very fortunate. I began working for the Forest Service on the El Dorado National Forest, which is in Placerville, California, east of Sacramento, in road engineering when I was a freshman in the College of Engineering at UC Davis, 1968. The El Dorado National Forest had the foresight to see that they weren't going to have enough engineers in the 1970s and 80s, back when the Forest Service built most of the road system on the National Forest. So they hired four of us. And um, I was the only one that survived and went on to uh, getting a permanent assignment as a civil engineer in 1971. But I was really fortunate my entire Forest Service career, which was 37 years. I had 10 different assignments all over the country, which um, you, don't, you don't make any money moving all the time, but it, it was a great adventure. The first 20 years were mostly in road and forest engineering, which were my forte, uh, and I joy, enjoyed tremendously. But then when I was on the Six Rivers National Forest, which is in Eureka, California, on the coast, they sent me to what was called then the 10-week Forest Engineering Institute at Oregon State University. The Forest Service put together with the uh, faculty at Oregon State in 19, it's in the mid-1970s. They ran one of these 10-week courses uh, every year. After that, I became a logging systems specialist on the Stanislaw National Forest in 1978. And uh, I just had my civil engineering bachelor's degree. So they sent me back to school at Oregon State in, in graduate cool. level cable mechanics. And while I was there, I taught road engineering and operations research techniques in the Forest Service 10-week Forest Engineering Institute. That was in 1979. California region liked that program so much, and they couldn't, they couldn't get enough people into the program. They had limited attendance. And so the California region of the Forest Service started their own 10-week program at Humboldt State University. And they asked me to coordinate the program okay. and uh, run it in 1980, which 
which was a lot of fun. Class didn't like it, but. How long did you run the program there? Just the one year. Okay. Uh, in 1981, I became the forest engineer on the Chatham area of the Tongass National Forest, which is at Sitka. It's the northern end of the Tongass. There's three supervisor's offices on the Tongass because it's 17 million acres. Huh. And, and so it was, it's Sitka, Petersburg, and Ketchikan. And I was at Sitka. And from there, I, I went to um, went back to California as the regional road pre-construction engineer uh, in the uh, regional office. And then I was, became the Forest Service National Transportation Planner uh, in Washington, D.C. What does that what does that role include? Well, that's that, that a lot at that point in time, that was the whole Forest Service road system okay. is what that was about. But at that point in time, um, we thought we should, we, the Forest Service, should be a public road agency like the Park Service was. Because that would give us then access to federal lands highway money, which is part of the six year uh, Highway Reauthorization Act. And, okay. um, and so we spent a we spent an enormous amount of time trying to convince Federal Highway Administration and Congress that we had a place as far as public roads mm -hmm. uh, on federal lands. Uh, they didn't see it that way, and so we weren't real successful getting a big chunk of money. But it set the stage because right now uh, the the current infrastructure bill in Congress, which includes the next reauthorization of the six-year highway bill, mm -hmm. gives the Forest Service a significant bump from about $19 million a year to $50 million a year. So that, that that's a good awful. that's a good bump. Yeah. That's a good bump. But you got to keep it in perspective because the, the Park Service gets $325 million a year. Oh, okay. And the Forest Service has got about 15 times as many miles of public roads as the Park Service does. Oh, yeah. But, you know, Park Service is pretty good at lobbying. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. But hey, yeah. you got you to take it where you can get it, so. Exactly, so we did. Uh, then after that, I was, um, the Intermount I was also the Intermountain West Regional Engineer in Oregon, Utah, which is the center of the country. Uh, from uh, Utah up to northern Idaho, well, southern Idaho. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I mentioned that is I was very fortunate. That was from 1990-2001. Just so happened that the Olympics were in Park City and Deer Valley and Snow oh, yeah. Basin. And what was interesting about Snow Basin, as you might remember, that's where the Olympic downhill was. Yeah. So I was an integral part in the development of the downhill run with an Austrian designer. And believe me, I learned a lot. <laughs> Let's see, then I, I, when I was in the national office, I had the um, opportunity. They pulled me into land management planning for a year or so and at that time, forest plans were approved by the regional forester. 
Okay. So any appeal of the forest plan went to the chief's office for review and a decision. So I was a decision writer for okay. appeals on forest plans across the country. And I'll tell you, there was never a better way to get immersed in the policies and direction of the Forest Service for any topic you could think of. I can imagine. And in fact, this, these decision memos numerous times set the direction because the direction had never been created. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a tremendous learning experience for me. I just enjoyed the heck out of it. Now that some would say the downside of that was, but it, it was positive for me. They sent me then to Juno to be the Tongas plan revision team leader for the 17 million acre Tongas. Okay. Which um, some of you may know enough to know the that was at the time when the environmental advocacy groups convinced the Clinton administration that they needed to get rid of those 50-year long-term contracts that sit there and catch a can. Okay. So I was in the midst of all of that controversy. It led to legislation of more uh, in, of um, legislated inventoried roadless, which okay. didn't exist anywhere else in the country at the time. As you can imagine, that's that thoroughly through the revision process in a turmoil of incorporating legislation and the uh, eventual uh, termination of the two long-term contracts. So that that was a fun time. Yeah, sounds a little stressful, but it was a little stressful. The, the good news then was, then I went to the regional engineer job in Ogden, and then they wanted me back in Juneau again, but this time as the deputy regional forester of resources. That was okay. 2001 to 2005. That was an interesting adventure. After the two long-term sales had been canceled and the timber industry <clears throat> basically collapsed yeah. and took the small communities, particularly on Prince of Wales Island, collapsed right along with it, where it significantly uh, took a downturn. Yeah. So going through all of that was an interesting time. I was in charge of resources as the deputy. Um, then an, uh, an interesting happen, thing happened in 2005. The California Forestry Association, which had a position uh, of vice president in public resources, which was to watch over the national forests and how much wood supply they produced or dependent sawmills, veneer mills, and biomass power plants, uh, who are members of California Forestry Association. That person was gonna retire. And he he happened to know me and said, hey, my job's gonna come open. You gotta think about applying. And so I applied and I was selected. Yeah. So I retired from the Forest Service in uh, summer of 2005 and went to work with for California Forestry Association. And I've been with them ever since. So well, this is your this is your longest job then, I guess. I mean, longest spot yeah, you've stayed been, in. Yeah. Yeah. 15 years with California Forestry Association. And I I distinctly remember 
back in 1980. And I said then, I, sh I would just love to work for that organization someday. Oh, that's good. 2005, I got to do that. It only so, took it only took a couple decades or two or three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a little different, but still, I was part of the California Forestry Association, and you know, I've, I've been loyal and dedicated to them ever since. And and the biggest reason was the job that I had was to watch out for our members and make sure the national forests were producing economic, intelligently designed projects that somebody could bid on mm -hmm. and not go bankrupt and provide wood supply for the remaining sawmills uh, in our dependent industry. Mm -hmm. And we were at, well, we still are, we were at um, 28 operating sawmills now. In 1981, California had 151 sawmills. Holy cow. Yeah, so as you're, you've been there for a while, has your job changed since when you got there? I mean, how you processes and, you know, just, yeah, it's evolved so, probably. Yeah, big time. If you don't mind, I'll get to that in a second. Yeah. First, let me describe something that I think is pretty unique in the country, yeah. and that was California's biomass power plant industry, which we have members uh, at California Forestry Association and the power plant industry as well. But it was interesting that California produces about 10 million bone dry tons of wood waste every year. That's urban demolition wood, agricultural wood crop waste, and orchard removals, and forest biomass. Mm -hmm. Of all people, in the 1980s, then Governor Jerry Brown recognized that natural gas was a large contributor to the power generation in the state and went for 14 cents a kilowatt hour. On $1980, 14 cents was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So the governor said, hey, wait a minute. We have 10 million bow dry tons of wood waste every year in this state. Let's create a biomass power plant industry consume that wood waste and generate electricity. Mm -hmm. And so he created a 12 cent per kilowatt hour price floor for anyone that would come through the door and build a biomass power plant. And he directed the utilities to offer at least 12 cents to these entrepreneurs. Well, as you can imagine, 66 power plants were built <laughs> with nearly a thousand megawatts of operating capacity in the first 10 years, which is unheard of. Yeah. And after 10 years, our purchase agreements came up for renewal. Okay. Price of natural gas had dropped from 14 cents to seven cents. Mm, yeah. And has dropped to about four cents since then. So the 12 cent power price floor went away most plants for renewal were offered only six to 10 cents. And the result was much like the spotted owl impact on sawmills uh, in the early 90s, the impact of the price reduction on biomass power plants saw the number of operating plants go from 66 plants down to 22. Okay. Um, and that's about where we sit today is at 22. Okay. At the same time, 
there's been continual pressure on the biomass power plant industry because now subsidized wind and solar power is available at around five cents a kilowatt hour, similar to the price of natural gas. Okay. And they can provide all the renewable power util the utilities need to meet their renewable portfolio. Okay. That's just, that just makes it that much harder for the biomass power plant industry. And there's never been a, a resolution. Um, so do the, do the biomass plants um, supply for their region then, or do they put out onto the grid? They go into the grid. Okay. It's interesting that a community or a county can draw a circle around themselves and create their own power entity and they can go buy their own power. Okay. And they pay the utility that owns the grid so much uh, per kilowatt hour to transfer the electrons over their lines. And so yeah. there's quite a few places, uh, Eureka up on the coast, uh, Placer County, which is east of Sacramento, that have become their own utility. And they utilize the forest biomass power plant that's within their, their realm, their, in their circle. Okay. So they buy power from the biomass power plant. They do their own accounting, read their own meters, and they sell electricity generally for less than 20 cents a kilowatt hour, which today, retail, that's pretty cheap. Yeah. And so that has been helpful to the biomass um, power plants. And it's interesting right now, at least in statute, the utilities can't do anything about this. Okay. It's perfectly legal. Uh, of course, they've been trying to get legislation introduced as well as others, trying to get legislation introduced to stop this. And it's not fair to the utility to provide the lines uh, to service these entities. But anyway, that's, that'll be an ongoing struggle and debate I want to see it. See, yeah, we'll have to see how that turns out down the road. Yeah, but it'll be many years to come. Okay. Okay. So next, now some personal highlights and opportunities that I think are positive. Hi, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Forest Foundation and the Pacific Logging Congress. This year, due to COVID-19, the Pacific Logging Congress's annual convention has been moved to 2021, but they will still be holding their annual auction. This year, it will be virtual and people can bid online December 16th, 2020. For more information, visit www.pacificloggingcongress.org. Okay, back to Steve and how he sees the future of California forests. And this is mostly, this is all positive frankly. Mm -hmm. it, and it has a lot to do with the strong shift in the United States towards mass timber and cross-laminated yes. timber construction in lieu of using steel and concrete. That's going to cause a tremendous increase in demand for lumber okay. across the United States. And so uh, that's nothing but good, of course, for the forestry sector. Are, are you seeing any of those mills near you going up, the mass timber mills? What I, uh, not in California. Okay. You can't get past the uh, permitting requirements. Oh, okay. But um, Oregon, Montana. Washington. Washington. I've seen, I've, Washington. I went to one in Washington, so I know we, that there. 
they're up and going. And so. it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me because of the permitting situation in California that a plant will go in, say, in Reno. Oh, okay. And they'll truck the two-by-sixes to Reno to make the panels. Okay. And, and the Nevada will sell them. You know, that, that kind of stuff will go on. And a sidebar, uh, particle board, an oriented okay. strand board. You know, tremendous demand for oriented strand board in the building industry in the United States. The closest oriented strand board plant to California is a thousand miles away. Holy cow. Now, what kind of sense does that make? Yeah. <laughs> but it's all about the permitting requirements and having to use glue and, okay. and you know the emissions from glue and so on and so forth. So anyway, but the bottom line is there's gonna be a strong shift. The architects have got the specifications in place, they're starting to spec uh, building construction using mass timber and cross-laminated timber panels. So there's going to be a tremendous demand increase for lumber across the country. And at least for California, our lumber mills, two by sixes, dimension lumber is their bread and butter. Okay. They, they love this. They're all very healthy. Okay. Current market condition. And so it's just a matter of time, I think, uh, before there may be some expansion. Now, in order to have expansion, what do you have to have? You gotta have raw material. Yeah. You gotta have more wood supply. And so that's another huge plus that's gonna it is in process in California and other regions of the country with the Forest Service. They are significant, they are poised to okay. increase their pace and scale of fuels reduction. They know better than anybody, California being the perfect example of where the natural disturbance agents wildfire, insects, disease, and drought control the vegetation. The Forest Service doesn't control it. Okay. Yep. Natural disturbance agents control it. And that's because California has extremely productive forest lands. Okay. And so while the Forest Service through the 90s and, and early 2000s was selling like 400 million board feet a year, the forests are growing at the rate of 4 billion board feet per year. Yeah. So what's that tell you is happening on the national forest? They're getting denser and denser and denser, and you can see it in the Forest Service forest inventory and analysis. In 2005 in California, the average number of trees per acre on these productive lands is 266. That's on a landscape that's been shown to be able to only sustain maybe 20 to 100 trees per acre because that's all the water there is. Uh, 266. Wow. So then in 2010, the next report came out. Guess what? Density was 302 trees per acre. Oh, wow. So I'm waiting for the 15 report because I know what it's going to say. It's gone up again. Yeah. And so the Forest Service... They get it. And so they realize they have got to make some major changes okay. across the West, for sure, and, and actually all regions of the country. But, but California is right in there, too. 
they realize we have got to get to what they're calling condition-based landscape level management. Okay. And they're exactly right. They got to quit writing silvicultural prescriptions for a tenth of an acre out there in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. They've got to get to larger scales. And so now, uh, like the Stanislaw National Forest right now is, is working on a project that's 117,000 acres. Wow, okay. That's the way to get on top of this problem. Yeah. And so that, that's underway. Are the and forest are the forest fires and that thing helping them, you know, push them along since Yes, they get it. Yeah, okay. And then that was also they got an extra push from the five year drought and the million acres that were wiped out by bark beetle. Yeah. In addition to the wildfire. But to give it, I mean, the Forest Service gets this. I mean, just for comparison, yeah, the year 2000, on average, on the national forests in California, they burn at the rate of 422,000 acres a year. Wow. On average. The best year the Forest Service has had in terms of fuels reduction was in 2019, where they got all the way up to 216,000 acres a year. Okay. What's wrong with this equation? Yeah, no kidding. It's half the number of acres that the wildfires are burning up. And so they, they get it. They, the regional forester said back in 2011, in writing, we got to get to 500,000 acres a year. We're never going to get on top of this. So they, they, they recognize that the landscape scale approach is the right thing to do. Okay. And they also recognize and have been given uh, authorities legislatively from Congress. It's like a good neighbor authority, where a state agency can come on to the National Forest and do projects for the Forest Service. Okay. So that gives them another tool. Another one is called Master Stewardship Agreements. And those are partners uh, like Mule Deer Foundation, Wild Turkey Federation, okay. National Forest Foundation. They want to help. And they have a particular knack of getting grant money. And so they can participate. And they generally can do the work at maybe 50, 60% of what it costs the Forest Service to do the work because they're focused. And so the Forest Service immediately saw, well, now wait a minute. I can get the work done for 60 cents on the dollar through a partner. That allows me then to do more projects. Yeah. With my flat budget of X amount. And yeah. so that has really caught on in California. In just three years, we have forests now where 20 to 40% of their entire timber program is done by partners. Oh, that's just great. three years. So we're moving in the right direction there as well. So, and then, so you, you're talking about the, the fewer mills. Where is the extra timber going to go then? So, yeah, that's a great question. So the, the Forest Service, remember, in California is producing 400 million board feet per year. Yeah. And so let's say they increase by 20 to 40% over the next several years. Mm -hmm. That means one more sawmill in okay. the entire state. Okay. So they're still a small player uh, in the big scheme of things, but they're certainly going in the right direction. Yeah. Okay. And it's going to make a difference. The next thing they're doing, and this is out of their national office, they call mm -hmm. it forest modernization. 
how can we get the same result on the ground with less effort? And I'll just give one example of that. The one mm -hmm. thing they've figured out is that since much of the work nowadays is mechanical thinning of mm -hmm. uh, stands that might be 30 to 60 years old or so, they can write a prescription of what they want that stand to look like when a purchaser is done harvesting it. Okay. We want you to retain the largest trees and we want the spacing on the trees to be 25 feet. Okay. And we want you to have a little mini clear cut around oak trees that uh, are doing okay because they need the sunlight. Okay. So you add some diversity to the stand. So you write a prescription like that instead of going out and marking the trees with tree marking paint and cruising all of them. Okay. You just write a prescription. Nice. And what they found is, and I had, I had not thought about this, but as they started into this, what we found out is feller buncher operators take tremendous pride in their work. Mm -hmm. So they glommed on to these prescriptions and have just done a phenomenal job of being able to put them on the ground. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's really nice. And if, if anybody is fun, it's funny, it's kind of funny. If, if anybody questions, well, you know, why did you take that group over there instead of this group over here? That operator comes out of that cab like a <laughs> bolt out of a cannon. <laughs> Look. Buddy, <laughs> here's what the prescription says. Here's the way it looked. Here's what I did. Tell me where I was wrong. And you know, there'll be some give and take. Oh, okay. And they'll make little subtle changes and stuff. But those operators, they're just like gold uh, implementing these new prescriptions. And of course, the whole electronics realm, you now can put in uh, virtual boundaries, harvest unit boundaries. You don't have to go out and flag them and yeah. and GPS them and all that because you put it on a map and you get the, the coordinates off the map and you put it into some software. So the operator in the cab has got a monitor. He can see, he or she can see exactly where the, the boundary is on his yeah. monitor. Oh yeah, it's 15 feet to the right. Oh, it's a lot more, per, lot more precise than somebody out there with some paint. <laughs> And, and but it was, it's just another cost-saving measure. Yeah, that's going to be extremely productive. And you know, it's kind of fun playing with the Forest Service on this. And there, of course, you have your naysayer. Oh, that's not going to work. Yeah. And I said, in some cases, I said, okay, so who's the adjacent landowner to that boundary? Uh, the Forest Service. Well. So who the heck cares if the boundary's <laughs> 10 feet left or 10 feet right? Yeah. If it's the same property owner. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're getting past that one too. And then I, I think one of the bigger things that's going to happen and is starting to happen as you put these thinnings on the ground, mm -hmm. we're now starting to use drones, especially the partners. They fly over the harvest unit with a drone before they harvest, taking video of what it looks like. Okay. And then they put the drone back up after they're done harvesting and, with video. And I'll tell you, when you look at the post-harvest video, you, in two seconds, 
will know whether or not they took out enough trees. Oh, wow. It's just amazing. Drones are also going to be a big deal on steep slopes with skyline mm -hmm. machines. We now have uh, heavy lift drones that can uh, have 57-pound payload. They can string a synthetic rope 5,000 feet. Holy cow. So, so, so what, Steve? Why is that important? Well, because if I can string a synthetic rope down and then another one back to the artery, now with the, the uh, haywire drum on the artery, I can, use, I can pull on that synthetic rope and I can tie haywire to the other end and I can string the haywire. Yeah. So you no more haul on 250-foot coils of haywire on your back down in the brush. It's set up and rigged the corridor. Save a little wear and tear on your crew there. So. On your, and yeah. And I think the next thing that's going to come along is on fire suppression, you know, they, they've got on these big campaign fires, they'll have, you know, thousands of feet of, of hose strung out every which way all over the place. And so when the fire is finally out, they got to go pick all that up. We can use my synthetic rope. We'll reach out there with the drone and hook up to the to the end of the hose. And I got this, it's got a handmade big reel with an engine on it. And he can pull in the hose for him. I hadn't even thought it up that. on this front. So can you imagine when the fire suppression people see that in action? They will never, ever pack a hundred feet of hose on their back ever again. No, I, it's just, there's a better way to use your guys. Yeah, and so it's coming. And then the yeah. last thing I'll mention is, again, in California on the National Forest, 25% of the productive land is on steep slopes. Okay. You can't conventionally tractor yard. And so winch assist is just beginning, and okay. it's going to play a big role and the Forest Service getting back on the steep slopes. They haven't been on the steep slopes since the 1980s. Okay. So they're going to increase their land base by 25% by just getting back on the steep slopes, which will yeah, obviously okay, yeah. greatly increase their productivity. Let me just, in closing, let me say, as you can see, I'm bullish on the forest sector, particularly here in California, but domestically across the United States. And one of the outcomes... Uh, that I think is a dramatic shift in the productivity and the wood uses for uh, forestry sector, there'll be a sizable increase in the number of jobs. Okay. And to illustrate that, the University of Massachusetts, of all people, in 2009, did a study of each of the major sectors of the economy in the United States and studied what happens if you infuse a million dollars into that sector in terms of jobs? Yeah. In forestry, if you invest a million dollars, their study said you're going to get 39 new jobs. Okay. That's indirect, induced, indirect. 39 new jobs. That's the highest of any sector in the U.S. economy. Second best is agriculture at 22 jobs. Wow. So it's, it is a large... It's a big deal. And so I'll close with that and just say I think we're poised to see some positive, dramatic changes. 
that are nothing but good for the country and for our economies, particularly in rural America. And so stay tuned. We want to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Forest Foundation and the Pacific Logging Congress, as well as Timberwest Magazine and Logging and Sawmill and Journal for making this podcast possible. And we want to give a big thank you to Steve Brink for taking time out to be part of Talking Timber. If you have any ideas for speakers or topics, please feel free to send them to me at diane at pacificloggingcongress.com. Okay, until next time, take care.